My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Sundays with Tozer on Mickles and Dimes. Justin Tozer is singular. One of the smartest, kindest, most generous, insightful, caring, understated, hardworking, impactful, selfless people to have ever lived. If you've never met Tozer, I bet you're skeptical. If you have met Tozer, I bet you agree with me. A math and science prodigy, Tozer grew up on a farm where formal education was all but prohibited. Yet somehow Tozer would make his way to the world's most prestigious firms, first in Silicon Valley and later in Los Alamos at the world's preeminent scientific lab. Yet no professional accomplishment compares to the countless lives Tozer has saved, changed, and enhanced. Please take the time to get to know Justin Tozer through this podcast. You will become a better person for it, and you will see that Tozer is singular. Sundays with Tozer, Episode 6, Medication Side Effects and Court-Appointed Special Advocacy. Well, one thing I wanted to follow up with you on, last time you were talking about this great job you had at Halliburton, and you said it was you said it was a great job. And then a little bit later, you said you had to work long hours and it was dangerous and scary. So what did you mean when you said it was a great job? Uh, it paid really well. It guaranteed 60 hours of, um, of, um, of income, um, a, a week which, you know, people get excited and they hear, you're going to make me 20 hours overtime every week, whether I work it or not. Mm. Yeah, the secret thing is um, they plan on working you 60 hours a week at least, and you'll work many more. And um, I don't know, when you're young, um, uh, a job like that with Halliburton, it's an adventure. I mean... You go on out on all of these different um, um, uh, job sites where they're drilling, and uh, there's all kinds of crazy people there, and all kinds of challenges and problems happen that need to be solved immediately, and um, equipment malfunctions, that kind of stuff. So, like uh, our job might be to cement. Uh, a certain zone in a well that's being drilled and if uh and you have these high pressure pumps that pump the cement down to that zone what happens if the pump fails Uh uh-oh now you could cement off the zone that is going to be the production zone and you could run um a well that um you could cause them to lose millions of dollars and so you have to think fast and come up with solutions and then there's the humans that are involved as well uh some of them seem like they're halfway crazy and um my my brother also worked for that company and uh he had um a supervisor that uh uh was gonna crawl underneath the truck to look and see if he could see a problem and he got uh his uh coveralls got caught in the drive shaft and it's moved it's spinning at high speed yeah. uh, and you're out in the middle of nowhere um <clears throat> they got the truck shut down and my brother got his pocket knife out and 
cut his coveralls off the drive shaft and and um he's unconscious for a little bit and then oh, he, and then he come to and apparently your brain can't spin at high speeds and function properly um but yeah all kinds of stuff happens so uh, did you like that high pressure situation at times at other times i didn't like it i like the team element of it and there were certain teams that uh we felt like we were invincible you know we could overcome anything and we prided ourselves on doing a good job and solving problems but then there's the downside you know driving a truck that's brakes don't work and and you know getting in a difficult position and wondering how you're gonna solve it so when i was let's see probably the summer between my junior and senior year i went to a job interview and the pitch was kind of similar to what you're describing at Halliburton with some pretty major differences but the the basic idea was you're gonna work in potato fields uh, roguing potatoes and I don't I don't remember exactly what you're doing but you're basically kind of like sifting through different potatoes and it was you know the, the one thing we can guarantee you is a ton of hours uh, we're not going to pay you for travel time and you're not going to sleep much and we're going to be driving all over the west uh, mostly in Idaho I guess um, but you're going to get a ton of hours and you're going to be able to work really hard and I said uh, you know hard pass no thanks is that a job you would have accepted to go work in a potato field or you wanted something a little more challenging to your brain, a little more dangerous, like Halliburton. <laughs> um, you see, you had options, probably. Um, when I was at that same point in my life, um, you know, the economy was struggling at times in certain parts of the country, and jobs were few and far between. And if you could get a, a good paying job, you know, um, you, you were wise to take it. And uh, Halliburton was, there were a lot of people who wanted work, you know, in, in that area. And the only thing with Halliburton is a lot of people didn't last very long. Uh, and um, so it gave me a little um, opportunity there. And I desperately wanted money to get, so come back from my mission. I, I uh, there was like not a dollar to my name, so I desperately needed to raise money fast, and and it and it did the job. Um, but on on the when it comes to summer employment for people going into engineering and maybe a lot of other fields too, um, internships are really valuable in my opinion they um and employers when they see education combined with some experience from internships that's huge so i went on i had an internship at superior oil company mm. had an internship with california department of transportation uh with uh ibm and and then uh, I had uh, jobs on campus uh, 
that were kind of like internships, like uh, working with a chemistry professor uh, who was trying to devise ways to break down um, uh, toxic um, military agents that the federal government had stored. So I think those, I think internships are really important and I think industry should work hard to, to help get young men and young women into internships. And I know from being in industry that there is a lot of pushback against interns. A lot of your coworkers will say, well, they'll only be here a few months. What good would it be? You'd waste all your time, time training them. And then just when you got them started, then they'll be gone. But I, um, my interns always proved them wrong. <laughs> your interns did. Although I worked them, I worked them very, very hard. Um, an internship with one of my projects was um, was a huge commitment. Okay, a couple different questions. Um, I remember one of my summer jobs, I was working construction, building homes, and I forget exactly all the circumstances, but basically they needed somebody to be raised up in a boom truck. Um, so what I did is like they had me hook my foot into a hook and then they lifted me up like maybe 20 feet in the air. You know, it wasn't like 50 or 100. I'm not going to die if I fall, uh, but I'm going to get hurt pretty bad. So yeah. they raised me up and, you know, I did this thing and I thought I was a hero for doing it. And then I realized that was just every day. Every day was doing <laughs> stuff like that that <laughs> was a little bit dangerous. Did you ever feel like your life was at risk working for Halliburton? Or were there any really dangerous circumstances you got yourself into? Yeah, that truck 8530. Um, <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, I was asked to drive it fully loaded on a, in a backcountry area where there was no road. And I had, I was told to take it up a steep slope. And I got partway up the steep slope. And the engine, I had another problem. Not, not only was it brakes weren't good, but the um, engine needed to be rebuilt or replaced. It had little to no energy. I mean, it just, it was weak. And uh, I was already geared down in a low gear. And all of a sudden it starts sputtering and it's ready to die. And it's like, oh no, if this engine stops, the brakes aren't going to hold it <laughs> back down this hill. And so it was like, this is prayer time, you know, and that engine, it just went down to the very, very low RPMs and it, and it just barely made it to the top. And it was like a huge sigh of relief. And then another time over by Blanding, he was that same truck, um, I hadn't been paying close enough attention and there's a windy road that goes down into a canyon and then comes back out. And uh, the road was really nice and everything was great. And when you drive in a truck that don't have good brakes, you should downshift and, and be prepared for the worst just in case the worst is there. And all of a sudden I realized that this road was turning from a really fantastic, well-engineered road to a poorly engineered twisty road 
and um, I'm and and I struggle to downshift when the RPMs get too high. You can't really get the downshifting to work right. So um, I was praying that the that the steep twisty road would end pretty fast because I wasn't going to be able to control it much longer. So there's that. Um, and, and then there's the, you know, you're, you're asked to take this heavy equipment in places where there are no roads. And sometimes in the middle of the winter, muddy, snowy, freezing cold, and you, your truck slides off the road over and over. And then they have to get a caterpillar to pull it out. And, um, there were times it was just miserable, you know, and, um, but all, you know, looking back on it, it was a good experience for me. Did you say that you guys were doing fracking back then? I thought fracking was more of a recent development or were you just doing similar things? To there, there was always, um, you know, fracking became a big publicly discussed concept um, many years after they were already, you know, fracking became more sophisticated for sure. But um, <clears throat> we used uh, high pressure uh, uh, acid that would be pumped down. It would kind of like eat through the formation and open it up. And um, they also used other techniques. Um, our organization uh, frequently used acid. It worked well in the formations here. Uh, but those fracking machines, you know, they make the earth shake. It's pretty Im impressive. <laughs> impressive or detrimental to the earth and the people living on it? What are your thoughts? When you, when you see some of the controversies around fracking, do you think like, oh, these people don't understand? Or do you think, no, the people are onto something. This is, we're, we're maybe messing with something that uh, we may not want to mess with. I don't really have any problems with it as long as um, the appropriate environmental considerations, you need to understand the formations, um, you know, that you're, that you're trying to break up. All you're trying to do is increase the flow, right, uh, into your well. And um, um, understanding um, the geology of that area, understanding the aquifers and where they're at, and where your gas or oil is located and being considerate of all of those things. Uh, at least back in my day, which was a long time ago, there was a lot of thought and concern for uh, protecting the different zones. Um, and, and so that's, that's a big deal is protecting, um, uh, you know, the, the zones in between the product you want in like aquifers because you don't want to contaminate aquifers. Okay. So basically as long as you do it safely and correctly and the people doing it are using good judgment and are capable of making good decisions, you're okay with it. Keep in mind, they have very sophisticated technologies they use to, to um, down what they call downhole technologies, you know, kind of like x-rays and, and radioactive material imaging that they use to see what's really going on, see what effect they've had on the formation. 
it's, you know, they've really turned it into a science, I believe. And Halliburton prided itself on understanding those technologies. Um, you know, we had extensive course material and training that we were asked to go through. And, um, and the people who were leading the jobs were trained to understand that science and were tested to ensure that under tremendous pressure, they could do it correctly, not make a mistake. So last question then, um, it sounds like Halliburton prides itself on safety and doing it right. But then you've also got a manager who doesn't let you have brakes in your truck. <laughs> so uh, at what levels did the appropriate people have a good assessment of like safety and, and where were some of those breakdowns or was it just with some of the old school managers who just thought that you were capable of downshifting and that was one um, of the risk. Cortez where this Halliburton office was at was in a remote location and a lot of the corporate oversight, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't care to get out here. They went to the bigger sites mm -hmm. And uh, we were a small site. And um, what did we, we study today in priesthood? Um, that all God has to work with is um, imperfect, flawed people. And that's the way it is. <laughs> um, and you have to find ways to deal with that. Yeah. And I'm sure even at, in, in inside a university where you have all these bright, educated people, I'm sure there's there's occasionally problems. <laughs> oh, I have, I have no <laughs> doubt about that. Trust me. <laughs> By no means am I saying <laughs> that Halliburton um, is unique in its ability to make mistakes. I, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put the universities above any industry. And, you know, that manager, um, he was um, a red-haired, fiery-tempered guy. People were afraid of him. Um, I was never afraid of him. Isn't that something I don't really understand? There's some people in a corporate environment that everybody comes, like, scared of them. Don't tell them this. Don't. Don't bother them. Don't. And I never followed those rules. As a matter of fact, some of the people who ended up being my best friends were some of those managers that nobody else that I like stay away from. You know, they have a terrible temper. Don't tell them what's happening. But I I would always violate that, you know, that social rule that everyone would tell me. So this is really interesting, Tozer, because part of me wonders, is that just because you're naive and missing cues? Or is it just because you're so advanced socially that you know how to navigate all of these issues regardless of the personality? And I think it's probably the second. I think you are just more socially advanced, but maybe it works in combination with missing some social cues. I don't know. What do you think? I think part of it's being naive. Uh, and I also think part of it is thinking, I'm thinking this person would really want to know. You know, the worst thing for a manager, 
of a of a of a big project where there's lots of risks is for for an employee to keep information from them and to not share it. Um, you know, like that corporate safety guy that stopped by. Yeah. Um, he traveled a long ways to come see us. Don't you think he wanted to know the truth? <laughs> Don't you think he went home feeling like he did maybe a good job? He rooted out a problem. So I think just, I mean, thinking about this for a few seconds, I think we're all the naive ones for falling into these social traps where we read these social cues and, and they influence our behavior in ways that we go along with the crowd. And you just see it in a much more obvious way. Like, of course, this safety person wants to know, so I'm going to tell them. And by violating some of the social norms that had developed, um, it's, yeah, maybe it's in some ways naive, but in other ways, you've already just cut through all of the naivety of all the other people. And so you're just operating on a different plane. But I, you know, and this happened in several cases. Um, I do did not expect the anger and the outrage and, uh, and the furious response. I just thought, I guess I just expected him to like shrug and like, okay. Okay. It didn't work that way. Yeah. Well, changing the subject a little bit, there was one other thing I wanted to follow up on. Uh, your tumor you were talking about last time. Uh, if I remember from a previous conversation, the medicine that you take goes in cycles where you have to basically shrink the tumor. And then you, if I remember right, you can then kind of get off the meds for a little bit. But you have to go back on. That was the that was the approach that they had hoped for. Mm. Uh, and that's the way it often works out. As you take the medicine, it um, shrinks down, uh, behaves itself. And then um, after using it for a few months, often people can go off of it for a couple of years. And with most people, people, it does come back. But the problem with me is every time we tried to cut back or whatever, it just immediately. So I take some medicine now twice a week and I don't like medication days. And, but even in between medication days, um, the, um, you know, the hormonal levels are cycling from high to low. Um, so I think I actually understand what women call hot flashes nowadays and, uh, and, and they're miserable. People should feel sorry for women having hot flashes <laughs> or, um, but so far, you know, there's only two medications that have ever been used for this purpose. And, and one of them is really miserable to take. And the one I'm on, supposedly not so bad but i i hate it what's it called caragoline caragoline uh-huh um and uh do you know do you know the mechanism for how it shrinks the tumor not not really i forget 
I'm sure I've read it. I read all the documentation. Um, I um, I was excited to get started on it. I was excited that that there was a non-surgical option, but there's something about mine that's is different than most people's, and that is that it's very stubborn. It's very resilient. It um, uh, the cabergoline can um, control the prolactin, which is the one that goes way up, um, and it can get it to go down, but it is willing to go just right back up very quickly. That's odd. In terms of long-term health effects, is is the cabergoline expected to just be able to control this as long as you live? Like, what's the long-term prognosis on? Um, it's a pretty good way to control it, but there's um, you know that they, they worry about um. Not not having good control over all the different hormones in your body, um, just kind of it's it's not the same quality of life. I'd really like to go back to at least to be honest. I'd like to just go back to the point where um, it was there. And maybe it was interfering with testosterone, but nobody else knew anything else. I mean, there weren't any other problems. I'd like to go back to that, I don't know what you call it, asexual um, um, place, you know, <clears throat> where I could think clearly and not have headaches and stuff. But uh, the medicine's not going to take me back to that point. Um, that's clear. And the headaches and all the other symptoms just got too severe that you needed the medicine. Right. But it's a part of it is I don't know if it's the medicine causing the headaches and vision changes and it's just a different world. You have to get used to the the difference. And at some point, probably about a year ago, they kept talking about they would, um, they'd uh, fix it with surgery. But now they don't think that's an option to do that. So I think I get along fine with the um, with the medicine. You know, there's good days and bad days. And there's days when, um, you know, sometimes on a bad day, you just have to change your plans. You can't. Uh, and you get used to it. If you had to rank order your interests between medicine, engineering, and psychology, how would you rank them? Um, engineering is always exciting. Psychology is interesting as long as it helps solve the problem. I'd probably be second. The reason I'm asking is you forgot something related to how this 
medicine works. And I was just wondering, you know, if, if it was an engineering problem with something dealing with nuclear waste, I wonder if you would have forgotten that manual, or if you'd still remember it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, one of the things is, as you bring that up, one of the things is kind of, um, I remember talking to my doctor, it's like, okay, so, you know, I'm, um, you know, living with my mom and, and helping her, how is treating the, these prolactin levels, how's that going to change me? Am, am I going to be a, you know, a decent, uh, am I going to be able to continue to, um, you know, be a halfway decent uh, caregiver or not? I remember my doctor saying, I'm not sure. We'll just have to wait and see. Oh, no way. So, you, you know, and that's one of the other side effects or whatever of, so, uh, you know, pituitary also can, controls other hormones that um, cortisol and, and, you know, um, I can get, um, I can get angry for like, I have no idea why I'm angry, just angry. And I don't like that behavior. So that's another go hide in your room thing until it's over with. Have you felt, so you felt like that question that you asked the doctor, you know, it was wait and see. Do you feel like for the most part, it's been okay? Better than you expected, worse than you expected. I mean, obviously, it's not perfect given that you've got these. Not, you know, you not as not as bad as I had expected, and I think um, Mom and I have learned how to manage that. Okay. And um, so she's she's very uh, she's very uh, my mom's very easy to work with. Okay. That's well, got to be a big factor. In terms of psychology, you know, I did my PhD in organizational psychology, but I wouldn't put my psychology knowledge up against yours, at least certainly in terms of the practical experience and maybe what they would call clinical psych or experiential. You know how to, you know how to help people and connect with people and mentor people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Maybe, or, or maybe that is just, um, maybe everyone has, a, 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 you know, a parenting instinct in them. And since I was kind of in this position where I couldn't, uh, you know, wasn't going to have a family, maybe psychologically, all of those kids were, um, or youth were, you know, like a, a parenting attempt. Hmm. But if that's what it was, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Well, and you're not done, right? I mean, you're still, well, we can get to this later, but you're still working with uh, it's certain. It's certainly not fantastic, but uh, I have to tell you, like the kid in London, um, when he, when I told him, please call, I can handle your anger. I can handle 
whatever you're feeling, but just talk. Well, London's, the time shift is pretty significant from here. And so these calls would come at like two or three in the morning, um, every night. Oh, really? And, you know, and uh, it's like you're thousands of miles away and you're trying to talk somebody down. And, and finally he started getting better, doing better, proud of himself. Now I thought, finally, I'm going to be able to sleep. Now he calls in the middle of the night to talk about how good he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Is this like a a daily, weekly? It's almost daily. Almost daily. Daily now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's, hasn't had a meltdown at work for a long time. And look, all of what he goes to therapy once a week. And um, he just by chance got a therapist that uh, that really connects with him, you know, and um, and she's teaching him techniques to deal with his problems. And she's trying to help him get to see a uh, a psychologist as well so he can get some things probably needs some medication as well um but it's kind of neat seeing it's kind of like watching a flower bloom you know mm. that's a beautiful thing now he did all the hard work right but it is isn't it amazing that uh, these humans the is particularly young uh, young adults, um, they just, just a little bit of communication with someone could make a big difference. And I think that goes back, I told you about the study they did with uh, juvenile offenders and and uh, literally paying somebody to be their friend. Yeah, yeah. And the huge positive outcomes they saw from that. The what do you call it? Recidivism. Um, anyway, the repeat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, drops down to almost zero. Um, definitely something that society needs to learn. And the state of New Mexico said, has said, we need to actually reach out to religious organizations and volunteer groups. We need to be willing to work with um, all kinds of people who have access to at-risk youth. Yeah, that's a good idea. So you've got this young man in, in London calling you or in England. You've got this older guy every Sunday calling you to ask you questions about your life. Do you have a lot of other youth you're working with right now? Uh, not really. Um, we have a, a young man from our ward that's um you know is on a mission and um i worked with him before he left on his mission and he had he had some emotional psychological issues um uh his uh, um basically his parents were bad people and the courts terminated their parental rights and then he was raised by a grandparent. Anyway, he's having problems on his mission. And so um, the state president asked me to work with him. 
And again, it's hard because he's on his mission up in Western Idaho. And um, so, but I think we made a little bit of progress. Are you still doing CASA or CASA? Yeah, I just, uh, I just finished a case with six children and it turned out pretty good. Um, three of the kids are in guardianships and, and three of the kids are actually back with their mom and she's doing pretty good. Do you want to describe what that process is like? How you got involved with CASA and, and what your, what role you play in that? Sure. So someone will report that, uh, or, or maybe the, a police officer will identify the problem that, that uh, children are being abused or neglected. Um, and um, a police officer will go out to the scene uh, along with a social worker. Social worker kind of takes the lead and they may, when they go into that home, uh, say, you know, there's a problem here, but we're just going to work with you and help you deal with it. Um, you know, we're going to help this family get back on its feet. That's called in-home services. Other times they go to the home and there are, it's a very serious problem. Um, the kids need to be removed immediately. And so those kids are put into foster care. And then at a 10 day, there's a hearing 10 days later to determine whether the social worker uh, and, and their uh, organization made a good decision or whether the kid should be returned to the parents. Um, and at that point, usually the case gets adjudicated. And as soon as we know the kids are going to be in foster care for a while, the judge may assign a court-appointed special advocate. And um, these are people who've already been through a training program, usually 40, 50 hours of, of um, training and background investigation, that kind of stuff. And an advocate will get assigned to the children. And then your job is to um, be an independent um, uh, voice. You write reports to the judge and you also give oral reports and you're given um, a court order that gives you access to all records. Almost nobody else working on the case, the attorneys, um, the therapists and stuff, they don't have access to that information. So your first job when you get assigned the children is, is to go see what all the facts of the case are and then go investigate. You talk to the kids, you talk to the parents, you talk to the grandparents, you talk to the neighbors, you go to the school, you talk to the teachers, you uh, go to the doctor's offices and you uh, look at the uh, medical history of the children. Um, you go wherever you need to go. 
sometimes the parents are in prison and you you go visit them and and try to understand nobody ever tells you the complete truth it's like putting together a puzzle whoever most everybody gives you a little bit of the truth but they always paint the picture for them to look good and then you write a report to the judge has to be a factual report and you can make recommendations uh, to the court and so you're often making recommendations that the uh, the kids need more help in school they need um, they need to be seeing a therapist they need um, uh, a, a psychological exam uh, maybe they have medical problems and they need um, I had a kid who's um, had a huge mass in his um, um, stomach area that needed to be uh, dealt with and removed and and we had to go you know make it a priority to for him to get treatment um, so you're just an advocate for the children and it's interesting you go into the courtroom and depending on what your report said and what you say in court some days the social worker loves you and some days the social worker hates your guts and sometimes the respondent parents um you compliment them and they smile and some days you go in there and you tell them they're messing up you know they're back to um using drugs or beer bottles and wine bottles scattered all over the house and they you know mutter that when they catch you someplace they're gonna they're gonna destroy you um um when i first started it, there was just the emotions were just like a roller coaster um but it's it's a neat thing to see so you want the parents to get better. And so you keep a close eye on how they're progressing. Are, are, they, are they engaging in their rehab? Are they getting the therapy they need? Are the therapists telling you they need something that they're, uh, that they're not getting? Um, so you're concerned about the children. That's a number one priority. We are also concerned about the parents. The kids love the parents. Uh, doesn't matter. Even as parents try to kill the children, the children still love them, and you have to understand that. Um, you also sometimes look for people to become permanent guardians when things aren't going well. Try to find a a, a coach or a grandparent or something, somebody who loves them and and cares about them, somebody that um, you know can be there for them. And schools are really good. It, once a, a teacher and a school administration understands what your kid's going through, they're so much better with these kids because they see this kid that's in foster care acting out. They don't understand what they're going through, you know. They don't understand the horrible things they've experienced. And once they understand, they'll help, you know. Um, one of my kids, they uh, got the the kid a you know kind of his own private bathroom to use at the school, uh, 
and, and that's neat. Um, so it, it's a it's a complex thing. Um, I mean, it, it's simple, but it's complex in that there's so many people involved. The children have attorneys. The respondent parents have attorneys. The parents and the children have therapists. Um, the um, social workers they have objectives. They want to close the case as soon as they can. Uh, um, there's the relatives. They all have opinions on what they want out of the case. How did you get involved? Um, I had read about the CASA program in when I was in Idaho, and I kind of thought it sounded interesting. But I just had too much going on there. And then when I got down to New Mexico, I said, you know, I kind of want to, you know, I, I don't know anyone here. And getting involved in the CASA program would allow me to get out into the communities and meet people. Because I, I figured when you're doing your uh, investigations, you'd run into a lot of people and make friends and get to know people um and i think it really helped i remember a lady one of my first cases in new mexico um eventually um her teenage son went back home with her and i stopped by after the case was closed we're usually not supposed to uh we're supposed to kind of um, control that relationship but I just stopped by to see her and see how she's doing. And, and she looked fantastic. And um, we sat out on the front porch of her house and she, she looked over at me and she says, why didn't you tell me? I says, why didn't somebody tell me? I said, tell you what? That I was a horrible parent. She says, I was a terrible parent. She says, I thought I knew what I was doing. I was treating my child the same way my parents treated me. And she says, that's, that's all I knew about parenting. And um, it always struck me as, as interesting. We, um, I don't know, especially people that live in rural areas, they don't get a lot of insights into what other people are doing. And um, this mother, she had, um, her childhood was clearly uh, problematic. You know, she was abused as a child. And when she had her own kid, she started doing the same thing to her child. She figured it out. A little parental training and and uh, and taking care of a few other issues. It wasn't just that, but mm -hmm. um, um, mom and I were in a store yesterday, and the lady do running the checkout counter, beautiful lady, and we walk up to the checkout stand, and I'm like. 
this woman kind of looks familiar. And then she looked at me and she says, I know you. She says, I know you. And I hear her voice and I know the voice. And then I realized this is one of my old cases. This beautiful woman was a totally messed up girl, you know, four or five years ago. Terribly messed up. And she lost her, she lost her baby. I mean, her baby was adopted by another family, but she did get services and that helped her to get her life back on track. It took longer than expected, but it's so neat to see her in, you know, in society and functioning. And I guarantee you, she, uh, her problem was uh, uh, drugs. Um, her eyes were so clear. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful moment. So I think when we work with other people, we get uh, a certain type of reward that you just can't get any other way. Yeah, you you inspire me to spend more of my time working with people rather than things or, of course, video games, as you know, <laughs> so much. How many hours per week were you doing CASA in New Mexico and in Colorado? And is there are there CASA programs in every state? Yes, they're in every state. Um, when you first get a new case, um, you got to work a lot of hours. So you're doing your investigation work at night and on the weekend, um, you know, if you're working full time. And then um, as you get the facts of the case put together, then you're more in a monitoring case and a monitoring situation. And that doesn't take as much time. You know, you keep following up at the school if they're school-aged children. You keep following up with the parents. You follow up with social worker. You follow up with therapists. Um, try to get everybody's input. Um, and sometimes, sometimes things just kind of get wacky and nobody's on the same page. And so sometimes you can call for um, what we call like a family-centered meeting, or um, in New Mexico, they have another word for it. Anyways, where you get everybody in a room, and you're like, okay, we're, we don't, some people here are angry, and, and uh, some people here uh, don't think everyone's doing their part, and you just, you all sit down, and you work together until until you're on the same page. I love those meetings. And it's so neat to have the parents and sometimes grandparents there. And, you know, we're talking through these things and they're coming to an understanding. Um, social workers are amazing. A good social worker is an amazing person. Um, sometimes I wonder how they stay positive all the time because they have to go through a lot of crap before they, uh, you know, get their reward. So, do you ever go into a house and feel threatened, feel like you're at risk because maybe they don't want you there, or are they usually pretty receptive to you? 
I've, um, particularly in New Mexico, um, there were threats that, that I might not be okay, but it's really rare. Um, but maybe that's part of my naive <laughs> brain. I, I remember, um, a, a high school counselor, um, she invited me into her office. I, I went to see her. And when I walked in, she just started bawling. And I'm like, what is wrong? She says, well, there's stuff wrong, but I can't tell you. I said, no, I got a court order here that says you can tell me. She said, no, she says, you don't understand. She says, I have to live here. And she says, I've seen what these people will do. If I tell you who's causing these problems, um, I can lose my job. Uh, I might not be able to keep my family safe. She says, where are you from? You don't understand. Well, Española, New Mexico, had some serious corruption in their um, uh, sheriff's department and even in their police department. Uh, I and even in their judicial system. And um, the federal government finally stepped in and some people got arrested and went to prison. I think it's much better now, but yeah, I guess you could run into problems. Here in Colorado, I haven't run into any problems. I just know that on some days I make people really angry. On other days, those same people um, you know, they decide I'm okay. And I think it's really important that you don't, and this is, this was hard for me. Um, I remember a case where there was four children, I think, and, um, and then the mother and father and their, um, Substance abuse and alcohol problems were just very serious. Uh, so serious that the father, when he showed up for the 10-day hearing, he was inebriated and out of his mind. And all of us in that courtroom looked at that man and thought he was the scum of the earth. And he just crawled out from underneath a rock. And I know inside I felt great contempt for that man, hatred for that man. And um, and then we put a treatment plan in place. And that man and his wife, they changed. And they became the most amazing parents. And their children became first and foremost in their lives, and they were proud of what they were doing. And um, you know what? Once they were past the substance abuse, they're beautiful people. And you have to be careful that you don't let your first impressions yeah. uh, cloud, you know, there's a good person probably in there someplace. And um, 
you can't allow yourself to just remember what you saw at first. So how many um, cases have you had over the last like 15, 20 years? I don't know. I've, I've lost count quite a few. Um, supposedly you're only supposed to, you're only supposed to work one case at a time. Uh, that's kind of the way the program works, but sometimes when they're shorthanded, um, you'll be asked to take on an, an additional case, but some cases last six months, some of them a year. They're not, according to federal, um, according to the law, um, they shouldn't go over a year. In my case with the six children, it went on, uh, it approached close to two years. It was a mess. Lots of fathers. And lots of substance abuse. When you make somebody mad, how does that make you feel? Maybe it a dumb hurts. question, but. It always hurts when you know you've upset them. And I've got to wear When I write my report to the judge, I'll write it three, four, five times. First, I'll write it just like I'm talking to the judge and I need to tell him the facts, right? And then, then I'll say, okay, now I need to sit down in front of the respondent parents and read my report to them. Mm -hmm. How do they feel? And then I'd say, okay, now I need to sit down in front of each child that's old enough to understand and tell them what I'm saying in my report. And then I need to tell each one of their attorneys what I've said. And um, it's a painful process. Um, I try to be very careful um, when I identify issues and when I make recommendations, but I, I haven't always got it right. In my, go, no, go ahead. I'm gonna say sometimes everybody in the courtroom thinks you're an idiot. Even the judge thinks you're an idiot, <laughs> and it's like a really good feeling when, uh, you know, a few weeks later they look at you and say, "Okay." You got it right. Oh, cool. You know, some uh, respondent parents, they're really good at uh, being what they call a functional addict. Mm -hmm. That's where um, they're a user and it's a big problem at home, but they can look good for a court appearance. You know, they're like, what is Tozer talking about? He's making up all these allegations. He's saying things. He's just trying to cause a problem for us. You know, he doesn't like us, blah, blah, blah. Um, you, you have to know the facts. And you can ask for things. You can tell uh, the court that you want a, a different type of drug test. You think maybe somebody's cheating. Prove me wrong. You know, and um, the nice thing is I've always liked the judge. 
I've had a lot of different children's court judges. And I think the judges have always liked me, even though I annoy them sometimes. Um, also, well, they'll want to quickly move on. They sometimes got a docket that's full, and I'll bring up some issue that they didn't really resolve, but they want to pretend like they resolve. They just want to get get moving on with the case. And but it's a big deal to you because you're wanting something to turn out good for the kids. And so yeah, my most recent judge, he get upset with me sometimes by, you know, I'd raise my hand and it's like, <laughs> I got something else. And you're like, what is it? <laughs> but the reason I think they always um, respected me is when there was a critical decision that was about to be entered into that had been a motion had been made by an attorney or the social workers. Um, the judge would always, uh, all of them would always look over at me and want like um, a nod of my head like a no or a yes oh, uh, you know and if if i shook my head no um often the judge would just either he'd probe more deeply or if he's in a hurry he'd just say well we'll we'll bring this up at the next mm. uh, at the next review hearing well i just table it for right now um so i think they respected me Well, should we wrap up here for the day? Sure. Yeah. We've gotten off track a little bit in terms of chronology, but I wonder if next time, if we can kind of go back to you finishing up at BYU and yeah, how you ended up choosing the job that you chose with the employer you chose. and Or we could also talk about some of those internships too, because I remember you invented something at IBM that was pretty cool, <laughs> or you at least worked on something that was pretty cool. That's my memory. Anyway. Yeah. We had fun. Okay, so yeah, let's uh, let's pick up there next week or next time if that sounds okay. All right, it's good to talk to you, Nate. Yeah, you too, as always. Let me hit stop. Thanks for listening to the sixth episode of Sundays with Tozer. In episode seven, we discussed Tozer's return to BYU from his mission. We learned the backstory for how he became a math tutor for hundreds of youth, and we also learned about the standing ovation he received from the chemistry department. Subscribe to the Mickels and Dimes podcast to be notified each time an episode is posted. Thanks again for listening to Sundays with Tozer.